At the far end of the universe, there is a planet ruled by a being of utter evil. And there is only one man who dares challenge him. They are locked in a battle to the death. A battle that will take them across the heavens. Stop him! A battle that will finally be fought. I want them to get down and brought to me! Across the face. Police! Nobody move! Of Earth. I think I'm gonna need some backup. Can you show us the way? Of course. No! distant galaxy, they have come to Earth. Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, Frank Langella as Skeletor. Only they have the powers to be. Masters of the Universe, live the adventure. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. I got a seltzer baker for Christmas. And I'm now finally, now that it's February, I'm in the phase of finally getting out the things I got for Christmas and uh, trying them out. So I've been on a seltzer kick. And I have to say, I, I really recommend it. It feels good not having so many cans all over the house filling up my recycling some of it is i i was trying out a dry january and seltzer definitely helped but i'm also glad that january is over so that's what i've been up to i am going to talk to you a little bit about what i got for christmas but just not yet i'll come a little later in this episode <laughs> so um you got a sword gun from Sword and the Sorcerer, didn't you? The three-bladed sword. <laughs> no, no. I'll get to it, but we will. Okay. We are talking all about toys this this time too, because we are talking about Masters of the Universe, one of the most successful toy lines in history. You know, prior to these action figures being released in 1982, all male action figures were licensed products. They were licensed from some other source. Mattel, who makes the Masters of the Universe toys, they had the license for Clash of the Titans, and they spent $2 million to get it out, and then the movie bombed. But the big story here was that they passed on Star Wars, and a former Mattel employee worked for this now little company in Cincinnati, Ohio, called Kenner. And they got the license and it went on, of course, to be hugely successful and totally revolutionized the action figure market, you know, things that are still felt today. The president of Mattel definitely balked at Lucas's astronomical $750,000 asking price, <laughs> <laughs> which is just crazy. 
but lead time might have had something to do with it too. Uh, so there was like no way they could have it out in time for Christmas. So they passed on it. Even Kenner couldn't actually deliver on the promise to have it out before Christmas. They actually ended up shipping empty boxes, which they called early bird boxes, which were coupons for the Star Wars figures when they finally came out. So parents bought kids these empty boxes and it totally was successful. And by the way, the coupon just promised sometime between January and June of the next year, they would get their action figures. So of course this caused major ripples in Mattel. They were pretty successful on the girls' side of stuff with Barbie, but they were not successful or hadn't been in several years for the boys' toys. So they had three ideas, space, army, or barbarian. And everybody liked the idea of barbarian best. So they originally got the Conan license, you know, and they went with barbarian. But then they went through all the early development and then they found out that Conan was going to be rated R. And so, <laughs> so what they did was when they went around, they presented two ideas to stores. One was Conan and one was He-Man. And that really ticked off the Conan licensors who claimed they only took the Conan license to bury it hmm. so that they could put out their competing toy, the he-man stuff it took a few years as as legal proceedings do but this eventually went to court and the judge who pulled this case must have thought he won the lottery so i'm going <laughs> to actually read from the actual judge's ruling in this case conan properties inc plaintiff versus mattel inc defendant and Mattel Inc. counterclaim plaintiff versus Conan Properties Inc. Uh, <laughs> United States District Court, New York, April 19, 1989. Opinions and order. Robert P. Patterson, Jr., District Judge. This is the actual judge's briefing on this. The lawsuit, so, sorry, this lawsuit pits Conan of Chimeria, the barbarian, against He-Man of Eternia, a master of the universe, two warriors who have been fighting for five years on anomalous terrain, the courtroom <laughs> instead of the battlefield. And then I'll skip down. Part six, conclusion. For the reasons discussed above, Mattel's motion for summary judgment is granted in part and denied in part, and CPI's motion for summary judgment is denied. Having chosen to resolve their disputes through nonviolent means, Conan and He-Man must now present their cases before a jury of the peers of their creators. It is so ordered. <laughs> it is so ordered. <laughs> so that judge must have been like, yes! <laughs> but who actually created He-Man is unclear. So it could be Roger Sweet who created the rough prototype. It could be Mark Taylor, who created a barbarian hero called Torak, which the marketing people at Mattel saw and then asked to pitch it to the suits. Don Glutt, who wrote the mini comics that shipped with the toys, claimed that he did it and he sued but lost. There's also a case to be made that Mark Ellis, the vice president of boys' toys at Mattel, was the creator. Also, Filmation 
who never exerted claims at creating it, but much of what we know of as the He-Man story, which has been retold several times before it became what it is, a case could be made for them. They created a character called Blackstar a year or two earlier, which was a Saturday morning cartoon, which almost like they just rebranded it as He-Man. One of the early sketches and even the early prototype model was based on a Frank Frazetta painting. And that Frank Frazetta painting was a Frazetta painting of Conan. So yeah, it's a really convoluted mess as to who created He-Man. Among geekdom, there's also a debate as whether or not this is even sword and sorcery or whether it's actually sword and planet, which is an earlier genre pioneered by Edgar Rice Burroughs in the John Carter of Mars stuff, where you mm -hmm. basically have a blend of sci-fi and fantasy elements. It was originally going to be called Lords of Power, but that was deemed to be too religious so they changed it to Masters of the Universe. Again, some of the higher-ups decided that, and of course, everybody below hated that. Apparently, they did kid focus groups with the toys early on, and they found that kids wanted to have power, felt they had no power, like that they always had to do what their parents told them and what their teachers told them, and they wanted to have the power. So that was kind of the idea behind the line and thus the I have the power line. <laughs> Paul Cleveland, engineer and VP of marketing at Mattel, said there should be other mans rather than He-Man because they had to come up with the whole line. So he he wanted C-Man. And mm. uh, people finally <laughs> talked him out of calling a character C-Man. Uh, <laughs> and so C-Man <laughs> became Merman. And then there was D-Man, letter D-Man, like <laughs> Demon. That became Skeletor. And the original line had eight figures. He-Man, Tila, Merman, Skeletor, Beast-Man, Zodak, Man-at-Arms, and Stratos. And they had learned from Barbie toys that it was all about the accessories. So they added, all of them came with like weapons and stuff like that to add to the playability of the toy. They wanted to buy a 10-page ad in DC Comics to, to advertise this. But a big catch of the sale was DC would have to create the story because they didn't have a story. They just had mm. characters. So DC created this 10-page insert. And it, first they had uh, DC Comics Presents number 47, Superman versus He-Man, which I read. I actually own a copy. Apparently it's worth hundreds of dollars. I just found that out doing the research for this. I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll throw this on eBay. Um, <laughs> that then spawned a DC Comics miniseries. The license has switched hands a bunch of times. There's three different comic creators. The original mini comics that shipped with the characters, the DC Comics, and then later Marvel got the license. So there's Marvel Comics. Of all these, I love the DC ones. The original DC ones were actually pretty good fantasy. There was a mini series that they came out with. It didn't have Orko. It had an old wizard. The one thing I never liked about it about it when I read it, because that was my first contact with He-Man, was the genericness of it all. Like, He-Man, mm -hmm. Battle Cat, Man-at-Arms. I'm like, this is so generic. Little did I know, it turns out that was intentional. Hmm. So Roger Sweet had pitched He-Man as a powerful figure that could be taken anywhere and dropped into any context because he had a generic name, He-Man. 
But the idea was also to create a generic mold. So they didn't have all this lead time to get toys out like Clash of the Titans. They would have one body and then they would just use that for all the, whatever heroic Hmm. thing they were going for. And even in Masters of the Universe, they all have the same body, like Skeletor, He-Man and all that. They just have different heads and different paint jobs, right? (laughs) So it was called Generic Licensed Male Action Figure. And uh, originally it had black hair, they changed it to be blonde hair for some reason. That was considered more friendly or something. I don't know. Some strange reason like that. I'm looking here at the original memorandum from December 24th, 1981. Generic licensed male action figure. And it said, we have been very successful in applying licenses to male action figures. Sometimes, however, when we find out a film will be a major success, it's too late for us to tool up an entirely new line. If we had a generic male action license tooled up, the lead times and expenses involved in getting into license would be a lot less. So there was a recommendation that they do this. So they would go into the toy stores and they would say, hey, we got this character, but everyone's like, well, what's it associated with? Is it a movie? Is it a, and they didn't have any of that. So they said, well, it's going to come with a comic in every issue, you know, the explaining the, mm-hmm. the characters and they're like, oh, oh, so, so, so the, there was no comic. They had to make that happen because the guy <laughs> just promised that on the spot to Toys R Us. So then they went to another toy store and they were like, well, didn't you say this is for kids age five and up? And they're like, yeah. Well, five-year-olds don't read. And they're like, (laughs) did I not tell you about the TV show? You know, so so there was no TV show. So then they had to make a TV show happen, you know? So that was going to be just two specials and they hired Filmation to do it. Filmation was known for all its Saturday morning cartoons at that time. When they came to just commission Filmation to do two specials, Lou Scheimer, who was the head of Filmation, thought it would be a hit show, thought it could be a good show. So he said that they do it if they had creative control. So they created a Bible for the show and it was fine by Mattel because Mattel's like, you want creative control over like coming up with a story for us? go for it because that is not what they're good at doing they're good at selling plastic right so they they're like sure sure so um shimer knew that if it was going to be a regular show it was going to be on the air every weekday and that they would it would start with even a 13 episode whatever that it would keep his entire staff employed for a year just on this show Mm -hmm. so he's like yeah we'll do it Well, it's interesting you say that for the TV show, they had a lot more artistic control because one of the things about the making of the film is the director, Gary Goddard, was really kind of a noob and let Mattel have tons of artistic control over the film. For instance, in the beginning, Mattel wanted He-Man to be the good guy all the time, and he wasn't allowed to do anything that was morally wrong. So no swearing, no killing. He had to be the white knight all the time. Eventually, as sales of He-Man toys started to dip, Mattel's hold on the project loosened a little bit. And Goddard was able to take some more liberties with the character. 
but the initial setup was he didn't know any better. He, he, you know, like, I'm just happy that you're going to let me make a movie. And as it turns out, Gary Goddard didn't really make anything else. He was a writer on the 1981 Tarzan the Ape Man, but his only other lasting accomplishment in writing and directing is the video you watch while waiting in line for the Jurassic Park ride at Universal Studios. So next time you're there, take a look up. That is our friend Gary Goddard at work. The other folks attached to the project were a bit more accomplished. David O'Dell, the screenwriter, also wrote The Dark Crystal. And the soundtrack by Bill Conti, of course, is excellent and really ties the film together. And Bill Conti had also scored Rocky, Karate Kid, For Your Eyes Only, had a very impressive career. As did Frank Langella playing Skeletor. At the time, he had a four-year-old son and he didn't even blink when he was offered the part. He couldn't wait to play Skeletor, which I couldn't believe because now, of course, he's gone off to have, you know, a really great career playing playing Nixon and Frost Nixon and, you know, is a very respected actor. Before Masters of the Universe, his only major role had actually been playing Dracula in 1979, a character that inspired many great performances, including in 1992, wait for it, Gary Oldman. Everyone! Got there. Uh, <laughs> I, I just want to say that Frank Langella, that was, Dracula was his only major film role. He was yes. very accomplished in the theater. In television and theater, yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, um, who, who can talk about Masters of the Universe without talking about Dolph Lundgren? <laughs> I think this might be one one of the reasons why this film has had lasting appeal is uh, his performance. Originally, Goddard was planning for all of Lundgren's dialogue to be dubbed over because he was having so much trouble learning his lines. But eventually he learned his, what, like 12 lines <laughs> well enough that uh, they were able to keep his original dialogue in the film. You know, despite being backed by Mattel, the film actually didn't have enough of a budget to cover the breadth of the story they wanted to. So by the time they got to the end of filming, you notice the the epic battle, which we'll we'll discuss later between He-Man and Skeletor, is really just those two actors. It's because they had no money for anything else, and Goddard had to finance the climactic battle scene on his own. So you know, kind of doing it against Mattel's wishes because at some point they had the company executives putting lens caps on the films and guarding them to make sure that people didn't do any more filming. But of course, you know, had to have the final battle scene. He-Man in the cartoons was um, voiced by John Irwin, who was previously known only as the voice of Morris the Cat. And he is still the what people expected to hear He-Man sounding like. Kids did. Mm. And Dolph Lundgren <laughs> ain't that, right? Supposedly yeah. Stallone actually visited the set and said, it made the joke like, you're going to let him talk, you know? <laughs> <laughs> also, I wanted to mention um, with regard to the violence, I have a page of the script here in front of me um, with all the notes on it from it. And so it says in the margin, the brand should 
provide their recommendations on which characters to use when and respond to Pressman only. Pressman, if you'll remember, is Ed Pressman, the same person who was the driving force behind Conan the Barbarian. Only Pressman created characters can be killed. Uh, not any <laughs> not any Mattel created characters because they didn't, you know, Mattel didn't want their characters to be killed off in this. Yeah. So Skeletor has a line in the original script, you and you and you there, go through to where the other key is, find it and bring it to me. And then this next part is circled. Kill the refugees from Eternia and bring me their heads. <laughs> and then in the re- next to it is <laughs> written, no killing, no heads. <laughs> <laughs> and instead it offers the, al- the alternative, eliminate He-Man and his allies. And then later on, there's stage direction to Skeletor. It says, Skeletor plucks a severed head off one of the poles behind his throne and tosses it into the mouth of Agar, which swallows the head in one gulp. This whole section is circled and in like two inch letters, no exclamation point. So there was some creative differences about what this movie was supposed to be like. I guess so. Their whole plan of having a line of toys not based on an R-rated film almost came to bust. Okay. Uh, Also, one other production note. Some of the special designs for this were done by Jean Mobius Girard from Dune fame. So there's kind of a Dune look to things you might notice. I did notice, and I was going to ask whether the aesthetics of like space mixed with ancient Greece was part of this sword-planet hybrid thing. And, you know, I I don't think of John Carter that way, but it does remind me of Dune, now that you mention it. Yep. And if you look at the original Mobius sketches, it's a lot like Dune in some ways. So if you got a Dune vibe off of this, not a coincidence. Let's all go to the lobby. So this is one that I actually made uh, before watching this. This also employs what I got for Christmas, a slow cooker. So I got a triple slow cooker. It has three different pots. I only used one of them for this. All you need is one slow cooker or crock pot for this recipe. And we'll get to this part in the movie. So little spoiler here, ribs, super (laughs) simple ribs. I give you this recipe because it is so easy. Get baby back ribs, remove and discard the outer membrane, and then cut the rack of ribs only into as small portions as you need to to get it to fit into the crock pot. I bought like a two foot long rack of ribs. I had to cut it a few times to get into a few sections to get it in there. So you throw that into the crock pot and you add three things, technically four if you count salt and pepper. One coarsely chopped onion. I just take an onion and cut it into like half moons or, you know, quarter moons or eighth moons, whatever it is, and throw that in there. Four minced cloves of garlic and a quarter cup of water. That's it. That's all you put in there. Put the lid on it and cook it on high for four hours. 
Hmm. That is all you do. And then you get nice fall off the bone ribs. Now, the finishing touch here, optional, but why wouldn't you do this? Set your oven to broil, line a mm. baking sheet with foil, baste the ribs with your favorite barbecue sauce, and put the ribs on the top rack for a couple of minutes on each side. It doesn't take long on broil on the top rack. So less than five minutes for the whole process, like a couple minutes on one side, a couple minutes on the other side before the sauce gets a chance to burn. Then you pull it out, got the nice baked on sauce. That is it. It is super easy. The only trick is that you have to start it four hours before you want to eat it. And that's if you do on high. If you choose to do it on low, say you're going to, you can't come back halfway through the day. Believe me, high is perfectly fine. It some people say, oh, it's so much better if you cook it slower or longer. With a slow cooker, four hours on high, it's just going to come out great. But if you can't do that, say you got to go to work and be gone all day for eight hours, you can do the same exact thing except set it to low for eight hours. You'll get about the same results and then broil it when you get, get done. That's it. That is my super simple recipe for ribs. That also sounds like a great alternative for us in our uh, New England winters, because my family method involves the grill, and there's no way I'm going outside. Uh, you have to grill twice. You you grill in the beginning to kind of like create a seal, and then you put it in the oven for like two and a half hours, and then you grill it again at the end, the way you, you know, braise the sauce. But I'm I, it was negative 20 yesterday. I'm not going outside. Yeah. <laughs> Crockpot sounds much better. Oh, it's, it's great. I'm never, I'm probably going to do this forever. If I, if I ever decide to grill baby back ribs, it's going to be, I'm going to cook them this way first and then do the grilling at the end instead of the broiling just to yeah. give them the charcoal flavor. Right from the get-go, it opens up and there's these credits and I'm like, these credits seem awful familiar. <laughs> and it's like, these are the Superman credits, the yes. Superman font, the Superman everything. And the music even sounds like John Williams' Superman score. I like paused it and looked it up. And sure enough, Canon Films, who, who was making this film, also was doing Superman for the quest for peace. So it's probably no surprise they were making the disastrous Superman sequel at the same time they were doing this and just ripped off the Superman opening credits. As soon as those credits are done, we get one quick establishing shot of Eternia, and then it cuts to inside, and immediately it goes to Skeletor, surrounded by a bunch of soldiers whose costumes look exactly like Darth Vader ripoff costumes. Yes! And, and the music sounds like a ripoff of John Williams' Star Wars theme. I'm like, all right, so we're not 30 seconds into this film, and it's already ripped off Superman and Star Wars. <laughs> You know, it's funny you mentioned that because what the credits reminded me of was Spaceballs, which of course is a parody of Star Wars and and Superman style credits. So it's, you know, I, I had a similar reaction, but I I didn't think of it. I didn't bother to do the research of Superman 4. That's that's funny. Clearly, uh, clearly stealing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the costumes are pretty cheap looking, especially Skeletor, which is a shame I watched the Netflix show, The Toys That Made Us, in preparation mm. for this, and there's an episode on He-Man, and in that, they do a full-on, like, equivalent of Screen Junkies' Honest Trailers, uh. <laughs> and, and they have, like, this movie starring, you know, 
uh, with, you know, all the characters you know and love, like He-Man, Skeletor, Courtney Cox, Courtney Cox's <laughs> boyfriend, music store guy, and whoever <laughs> this is, the character with the big hair and all that. Yeah. Um, and they're just like, you know, and um, <laughs> Screen Junkies themselves did one of their Totally Honest trailers for this, and they said the same thing in it. A small-town romance between this orphaned waitress and an aspiring keyboard player that for some reason takes up 50% of my He-Man movie. Stop trying to relate to teens movie. He-Man is for small children and 40-year-olds only. No in-between. Nothing in-between. <laughs> Stop trying to be relatable to teenagers. <laughs> you know, that was something I, I didn't know anything about the film going into it on purpose. And so when they, you know, within... 15 or 20 minutes go to 1980s earth i was just it reminded me of an episode of star trek where you know they they had to find some way to make the space plot relevant to everybody so they were like all right we're gonna go to earth oh <laughs> i think they want they went to earth to make because it was cheaper like they couldn't afford <laughs> to, to create sets for all this stuff so they're like let's make one set in eternia and then the, and the rest will be in like a back lot where we can shoot like, you know, regular earth stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so according to the documentary Power of Grayskull, the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the film originally was supposed to include all the major characters, including She-Ra. But one Mattel employee, Claudio Mazzoli, went on camera saying that they didn't include some of the characters because the special effects would have been enormously expensive. Remember, this predates mm. CGI. So the filmmakers convinced Mattel it was good that they were going to create all new characters because they could make new toys to sell. We'll talk about why that might not have been a good idea later on. But mm. <laughs> in that particular parody, they were like, it includes all these characters and this guy, whoever he is, and it shows Gwildor, the, the sort of yes. gnome hobbit. And I swear to God, one of the first things he says is that I don't like adventures, you know, and a total <laughs> Bilbo ripoff, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, something like that. I mean, it reminded me a lot of Labyrinth. Again, yeah. Jim Henson style makeup, like half puppet, half person. Uh, was not expecting that with based on what I knew of He-Man and Skeletor. <laughs> so in order to get them to Earth, they got to come up with a reason for them going to Earth. And they, they're trying to escape Skeletor's forces. And Wildor just has this cosmic key that opens portals. And he just like starts randomly pushing buttons and like opens a portal to who knows where. And then I'll just jump through it. I'm like, he's like, it could be anywhere in the known universe. And I'm like, well, that sounds a little dangerous. <laughs> like, I don't want to emerge in the middle of space <laughs> or like inside yeah. a sun, but they do it. They jump through and they end up in contemporary at the time, 80s Earth. And boy, is this 80s. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so one of the first things they encounter is, and this, this goes to the absurdity of the lengths of cheapness they will go to in this film they run into a forest dwelling cow yes oh my god <laughs> in the middle of a forest and there's this cow there like what the fuck like what were they thinking it's yeah. not in a pasture it's just in the middle of the forest of a, a, a you know random forest cow 
Yeah, you sort of wonder what other animals they had on their list of, you know, like what would be comical for them to be afraid of and then have it appear. And they said, well, scrap that. You know, my neighbor has a cow. Let's just borrow that cow. <laughs> okay. So them, by the way, we should say who this is. This is He-Man, uh, Man-at-Arms, and Tila and Gwildor in the middle of this forest. Rosie mentioned in a previous episode, Solid Gold Dancers. The woman that plays Tila in this, Chelsea Field, is a former Solid Gold Dancer. So nice. I think that was worth <laughs> mentioning here. Um, that was her previous claim to fame. So immediately we get this vegetarian PSA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're eating ribs in the middle of the forest from Courtney Cox's restaurant. I forgot how they got that. They stole it. Like uh, Gwildor like levitated the bucket out of a teenager's car or something. Yeah. So I also missed it. And, you know, I can't remember. Maybe I was typing notes at the time, but I looked up and I could have sworn that they killed the cow. That was, I, I was like, how else could they possibly have the ribs? But, but apparently, <laughs> apparently they had other methods because they were like perfectly barbecued. So I dismissed that at some point of like, they're not going to know how to make ribs out of the cow. But that was the first thought that occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, Tila actually is like, why, why do they put these little sticks in them? And, and Man-at-Arms says, those are the rib bones. You know, and she's like, you mean this came from an animal? Now, this is way ahead of its time, like to have a PETA message in the middle of a film in 1987. <laughs> I don't know who threw that in there, but there was some person, you know, there was some person that was like, I'm going to sneak this shit in there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the bright and shining future of, of Eternia, we will not need to eat flesh of, of previously living things. <laughs> okay. So they meet Courtney Cox, who immediately trusts them. This is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles level of like, they're these weird people okay, I'll go along with them. Well, or just the slightly less weird people. I mean, like the the others were, you know, clearly aliens. And so she goes with the more humanoid ones, figuring, you know, well, maybe they won't eat me. <laughs> so this brings me to something, one of my big beefs about this movie. The characters often just sort of seem lost, like in their dialogue or their actions. And this is like an indication of poor direction to me. So. Let me give you one notable example. There's a part where they're hiding out in the music store and Evil Lynn poses as Julie, that's Courtney Cox's dead mother, and like convinces her to go in and get the key and bring it to her. And after she does that, she just says, screams that long, no, <laughs> you'll yeah. remember from before. And then backs away. She doesn't like try to grab the key or run from her or anything like that. It's just kind of like, I don't know what to do now. Yeah. And I got that feeling so many times in this movie where I'm like, the actor does not know what to do with their hands. The actor does not know what to do <laughs> in this scene. That came up over and over again for almost everyone in this. Almost everyone. And, yeah, I was going to say everyone except for uh, Vice Principal Strickland or whatever his name was in this actual film. But I, I couldn't get Back to the Future out of my head. He seemed competent. He seemed to know what his motivation was. Yeah, he played that role in so many things in the 80s. Like, that was like his, he had a lock on that that kind of role. 
the other person that that really outclasses everybody in this movie by far is Frank Langella as yeah. Skeletor. It's like everything is getting cut here. They're cutting the budget. They're cutting this and that. According to Langella, the final battle, which I didn't want to skip all the way to that just yet, but I'm gonna. There's this epic battle, sword battle with him and He-Man. He said they only used about 20, they only shot about 20% of the battle, you know? Mm. But, but everything is half-assed throughout this whole movie, except Frank Langella. It reminds me of like, everything else is going on and he's like, God damn it, I don't care if this is He-Man. I am going to play this to the end, like going down with the ship kind of like thing. Yeah, I mean, trying to be a Darth Vader level villain with memorable lines. I I mean, the only lines that I wrote down from this were his, uh, you know, at, at the moment when after he's captured He-Man, he says, well said, He-Man, how noble. And he's got this like imperious and self-satisfied thing but it's kind of underscored by almost like a sadness that the battle is over like like they're actually you know acting moments yeah in, yeah and, and, and he's doing that behind a stupid rubber halloween mask right his yes. his, his his mask so you can't even see any of his face except his eyes and he's manages to pull this off which is an amazing feat and the line i really like is where he's skeletor's best moment he's like Tell me about the loneliness of good, He-Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? Yeah, I wrote that one down as well. Best with, line, best line. With, which he apparently got from reading, uh, he was inspired by reading Joseph Campbell. So like, here's a guy who's like putting serious effort into this role, reading just, which is more than the people who created the He-Man toys ever did. You know, <laughs> it's like, he's like going super in depth in this character. And so- there's something about this film that makes it even worse in some ways because, well, it's totally worth watching just for Frank Langella, but also it reminds me of, you know, when when I watched Much Ado About Nothing, and it's good that Rosie's not here because she'd be standing up for him. Keanu Reeves was in that and he was terrible next to the likes of- Emma Thompson, Kenneth Branagh, Denzel Washington. I mean, the, I think the list goes on. <laughs> And yeah, he sticks out like Sir Thumb. But this film is the opposite. You've got the one guy and everybody else sticks out like a sore thumb in comparison to him. I absolutely agree. And it's the only thing that really makes the conclusion work. One of the things I struggled with is the foundational conflict. It seems like it's Skeletor versus the sorceress. But He-Man keeps insisting like, it's always going to come down to you and me, or it's always been about us. And there's part of me that is like, no, no, it's not. It really is about Skeletor and the sorceress. <laughs> and, <laughs> and why do you keep insisting that, you know, you almost expect there to be a like, no, He-Man, I am your father level, like reveal in order to make some, some of He-Man's claims make sense, but we never really get there. Um, so I was going to ask you, like, what's what's the deal? Like, did you see it as, you know, inevitable that the conflict is really going to come down to He-Man's, like, good, you know, sword-wielding character versus the sorcerer and that that's, that's where the conflict lives? Or were you also kind of confused about, like, wait, no, wait, hold on, we've got this sorceress here. So the sort, no, 
the sorceress is always just like a sideline character in the He-Man toys. So okay. originally there was supposed to be the sorceress and Tila, and they were either one character that got split into two, or there were two characters that got combined into one. There was this whole belief, which sadly kind of true, definitely at the time, which was that female action figures didn't sell. So mm. they didn't want to make a whole bunch of them. In the comics, He-Man doesn't do the whole holding the sword up and turning into, it's the sorceress who turns Prince Adam into He-Man. He-Man is her proxy in this war with Skeletor. So I, that didn't surprise me that much. Part of the problem is that there's no cohesive story to Masters of the Universe. Even by 87, when this came out, they were just kind of, it's kind of so cobbled together, right? The toy line and the comics and everything else, it all like suffered from too many cooks syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie shows that as well. It's got too many things going on. They, there's no clear backstory to any of this. So yeah, we talked about Skeletor's best moment. What was He-Man's best moment? Uh, I guess the most He-Man feeling moment to me was when he's rescuing Courtney Cox. This this felt like just very stereotypical, like, you know, muscle-bound hero with a cape saving the girl who's in distress. And, you know, he says, like, trust me, come with me or something like that. And she does. And that just that felt very iconic for the for the character i don't think i have any favorite lines that i pulled out there's there's nothing he says that that is memorable to me what about the most 80s moment in this Ooh, i don't know everything around the key as a synthesizer like that yeah <laughs> seemed very 80s yeah of course it's japanese <laughs> that was yes. the one explanation for anything that they couldn't understand it's like it must be japanese yes like, like, I don't know if that was racist or just really weird. <laughs> this movie was a weird mix of good digital effects mixed with bad practical effects. Like we talked about, like the prosthetics and all that, which is the opposite of what you usually see, right? You usually see a lot of stuff with like the bad CGI, but the practical effects are good. And, you know, that's why there's been such a big movement to go back to practical effects in a lot of modern films. Mm -hmm. This is the complete opposite. Digital effects are fine. It's the everything practical looks completely corny, you know? Yeah. I mean, speaking of which, one of the digital effects that I really liked was the hovercraft, you know, invasion scene with which reminded me straight out of the original out of the first Avengers, Joss Whedon's Avengers felt like those those hover things i'm sure you know it's as comic books stealing from comic books but just cinematically it reminded me a lot of that invasion of of new york in that scene yeah so overall i'd say that this doesn't even have the camp value of flash gordon it's like i watched it once i don't think i'll watch it again or if i do it'll be many many years from now probably i'll just watch skeletor's parts speaking of flash gordon i think we cannot avoid discussing he-man as a gay icon like this is something <laughs> we have to talk about because when i was a kid one of the more embarrassing things about the 80s and i never did this because i was too woke at 12 to do this but gay was used like derisively as synonymous for like bad 
you know? Mm. But I remember even at that age, there was something undeniably gay about (laughs) He-Man. And um, I remember at lunch at school, some kid was going like, by the power of gay skull, (laughs) Mm. I am a flower, you know, that kind of stuff. And now it almost goes without saying, like the gay aspect to this is like, not even hidden. You know, of course, there's all the memes. Skeletor is the most me- one of the most memefied characters on the internet. But did you ever see the 2017 money supermarket ads? No. You need to Google this. They have He-Man and Skeletor dirty dancing. What? <laughs> yes, you heard that right. Um, there were two commercials made by this UK company um, that was called Money Supermarket. And oh my God. That they're, they're, yeah. they're both worth watching. The first one is just Skeletor, like um, mostly but Skeletor He-Man only makes a brief appearance. And then the second one, they go into a bar and, and it turns into the movie uh, flashback to Dirty Dancing. And now I can't drop that bomb on you without letting you watch that. So we'll pause long enough for you to do that. <laughs> okay all right all right and we're back <laughs> did you watch which one did you did you watch them both or did I, you watch i watched the one in the bar um okay with the dirty so, dancing moment oh my like, god <laughs> is that not hilarious yeah um, it, and perfect too now here's the thing i want to say about that so much of this movie like i look at it and i'm like that video that two minute video Sure, the costumes looked like the toys instead of like whatever, but they were better. You know, it's like (laughs) there's nothing about this movie that didn't try to hide the fact that it was made for kids. Why not make them look like the toys? That commercial, in my opinion, had better costumes than this movie did, you know? Yeah. Um, I just want to say that there is an entire Wikipedia page about He-Man as gay icon. Definitely. Uh, we could do a whole deep dive into the gayness of He-Man, but we're not going to do that right now. I just thought it was worth mentioning. That's really hilarious. I wonder whether it's something about, like, once once there are two male characters who both have lots of muscles, then it just, like, it trips into this other thing. Like, I, because... The costuming for Conan the Barbarian is not that different. You know, I mean, He-Man has a cape. Cape definitely adds adds some panache. But it, there is something different about He-Man compared to Conan the Barbarian, which, you know, it's an, I, I haven't heard of Conan becoming a, a gay icon. It's definitely more of like a quote-unquote He-Man icon. Like, you know, very, very masculine. But Maybe it's the cape. Maybe it's the long blonde hair. One of those things. (laughs) I don't want to get too into stuff that I don't know about here, but it seems that that kind of mesomorphic body type more appeals to gay men than to women. You know, I don't know. Not my area. Somebody go right in and tell us about why He-Man is so beloved by the gay community. But we're going to move on from that now. 
According to the Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us, the Masters of the Universe toy line went from $400 million profits in 1986 to just $7 million in 87, which is when this movie came out. So this movie came out at the crash of the He-Man toy line, which wow. did not spell good things for this film's success. And of course, this film did bomb. On top of that, one of the reasons that they kept cutting the budget and cutting things here left and right in this was that simultaneously with the He-Man line collapsing for Mattel, Canon Films was going into bankruptcy. So it was mm -hmm. also experiencing its problem. And so they had planned to do a sequel to this, but they were on the verge of bankruptcy, but they had already spent money on costumes and sets and and stuff like that so to salvage it they took the script and they retooled it into the film cyborg with jean-claude van damme directed ah, by yes. sword and sorcerer director albert Payan. so nice that's where we tie back to the sword and the sorcerer yeah, I don't I don't think I need to see this again, but as it is a cultural touchstone and I feel like there are references to He-Man and Skeletor everywhere, I am really glad that I've seen the film. Please write to us and tell us why you think He-Man is so popular with the LGBTQ community in general. The uh or if you want to tell us why how we got this wrong and how it's actually a brilliant film aside from the fact that we all agree that Franklin Jealous steals this, you can let us know at GCA Podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off.